Hey, let's stand together, and uh, Mr. Danny Davis is going to come up and read our scripture for this morning. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Romans 12, 1 through 5. The word of God speaks to us like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who, who are many are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. This is the very word of God to us. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. Thanks, Danny. Y'all can grab a seat. Hey, um, again, like if, if you're new to Frontline, new to the church, uh, we love the Bible. We really believe that uh, God speaks to us through his word, that it's living, that it's active. Uh, we want everybody, like I, we're, we're going to have the words up on the screen um, so that you can see it. And if you didn't bring a Bible or don't have a Bible, you can see it. Uh, but we want everyone to have a copy of the Bible and to be able to hear from the Lord through his word. So if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we would love to get you one. Um, so please find me, find one of our leaders, and we'd love, we'd love to get you one. Uh, we're in the fourth week of this series called Metaphors for the Church. And uh, it's okay, I'm going I'm to catch you up a bit on this, so d don't worry if you've missed, if you've missed some of that. Um, it's important for us as a church, it's important for any church, to, to ask the question, what is Jesus' vision for his church? So often we think about our own thoughts and desires and what kind of church are we going to be and how are we going to do things. And answering what should we be doing and how should we be doing it, that's important, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, what does Jesus say about his church? And what does he desire for his church? We should be asking the question, why the church? And then, who are we as the church? Because again, the church isn't a building, it's not an event, it's, it's a people, who we are. There's these two great questions in life, two great questions of life, that um, everyone seeks to answer. And this is not like, oh, just those who love Jesus and follow Jesus. This is everyone. Um, philosophers that, like, don't disagree about this, right? Who am I and what's my purpose? Everything in the world is trying to answer those two questions for you, right? This is what makes, like, we've talked about marketing and advertising so brilliant is that in, if you're in marketing or advertising, it is a holy vocation, okay? Where it can go sideways is by trying to answer those two questions, like, who am I and what's my purpose? Well, buy this product and you'll finally have an answer. If you can, as a marketer and an advertiser, get at those questions, you can be really successful in marketing or advertising a product. If you can say, this product, this service, this club, this people, this thing that you do, this thing that you buy that you don't have will finally fulfill these two great questions. It'll give you purpose and it'll give you an identity. Well, in the midst of all of that, Jesus comes in and gives us a truer identity, a better one. 
When he talks about his church, he actually uses these metaphors, these pictures of what the church is that help answer that question. Well, who am I as the church and what should I be doing? What's my identity and what's my uh, purpose, my action? So he says the church is the bride of Christ. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We're going to hear that the church is the family of God. We're going to hear that the church is the temple of God. And this week we're talking uh, about the fact that the church is the body of Christ. We're in the second part. We're, we split the body of Christ into two parts. Where the first week we talked about our identity as the body of Christ. And this week we're talking about our action as the body of Christ. So if you weren't here last week, there's this guy named Saul who's mentioned in Acts 9, and he's persecuting the church, and Jesus shows up, and uh, he knocks him off his horse, and he says to Saul, who's persecuting followers of Jesus, he says, hey Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? What we learned last week is that the church is the body of Christ. That's why Jesus could say, your persecution of my people is, is persecution of me because my people are my body. Jesus is unified with his body. His body is united with Jesus. And the church is Jesus' presence. Like we are Jesus' presence in the world. If you think about Jesus' ministry, if you read the Gospels, what hopefully will stand out is the idea of faithful presence. That wherever Jesus is, he's, he's totally there. Like he's, he's not distracted. He's not detached. He's not numbed out. He's not overly emotional and anxious. He is just right there in that moment. And so Jesus' faithful presence, the faithful presence of Jesus is marked by sight. He actually sees people. If you read through the Gospels, just pay attention to how Jesus saw people that other people wouldn't see. Some of you in here feel unseen. You, you feel unnoticed. You feel like people don't care. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. His ministry was marked by sound. Like he actually heard people. He wasn't just this ethereal being kind of floating around, detached from everyone. He saw people. He actually heard them. He heard their stories. He spoke with them. His ministry was a, it was a physical, an embodied one. Jesus, while he was on earth, have you ever thought of this? He was only ever in one place at one time. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. When Jesus walked on earth, he had a physical body, and he was limited by that physical body, which meant he was, his ministry was a ministry of, of locality. He was fully right there if he was there. He wasn't in these other places. He was right there if he's talking with someone. And then we saw again last week, Acts 2, Acts 1, 1 and 2, it begins like this. I wrote the first narrative, Luke writing here, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so what we learn is that Jesus is actually still working in the world that he created. And he's doing it through his body, the church. The physical ministry of Jesus is meant to be embodied by his people, the church. So when we hear the church is the body of Christ, that's the type of stuff we should be thinking about. I want to see people like Jesus saw people. I want to actually hear them. I want to engage in their suffering. Jesus was with people in their suffering. Jesus was only ever in one place. Like the idea of multitasking, Jesus would have been like, no, that's crazy. Don't do that. Just be wherever you are. 
Multitasking is, I don't want to do a whole other sermon, but there probably is one on the fallacy that is multitasking. Be where you are, with who you are, doing what you're doing. This is what we're meant to think of. So last week, again, was primarily our identity as the body of Christ. This week is our action as the body of Christ. What then should we do? So in Romans 12, um, you heard Danny read this earlier. Romans 12, let me set the scene of what's going on in Romans. So Romans is written by this guy called Paul, uh, who had two names, Saul and Paul. And he's that same guy that we talked about in Acts, who Jesus showed up, knocked him off his horse, and was like, no, 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 you're persecuting my people. Now I'm going to make you mine, and you're going to go reach people for me. So that same guy who is persecuting Jesus, because the church is the body of Jesus, persecuting the body, persecuting the church. I just want to like ingrain that so deep in us. Church isn't a building, it's a people. That same guy, Jesus saves him, he becomes the greatest church planner of all times, and uh, he writes this letter to the church at Rome. Uh, it's an epic letter. I cannot wait for us to be able to preach through, like to, to walk through this. It's going to take a long time, and uh, I can't wait to be able to do that. I don't know when we're going to do it, uh, but I won't preach the whole thing today, or we'd be here for the next three years. Okay, so... <laughs> The beginning of Romans 12, Paul, the same guy, he's writing, and he says this in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good pleasing and perfect. What is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? So there's this cliche saying that uh, most of the reason sayings are cliche is because they're true and they're actually helpful, right? So there's this cliche saying, anytime you see the word therefore in scripture, you got to ask, what's it there for? That is like one of the most helpful things I can tell you. As you're reading your Bible, you see therefore, say, huh, well, what's it there for? Take therefore, split it into two words. Therefore, what's it there for? Just ask that question. When the writers of Scripture use that word therefore, it's a hinge point. There's like a new part of the, the door that's opening up, and he wants you to actually think of what was before that hinge point. So when he says therefore, he's like, hey, in light of everything that I've talked about. So the first three quarters of this letter to the church at Rome, the first three quarters are Paul unpacking the mercies of God. When he says, therefore, in light of, in view of the mercies of God, the whole first 11 chapters are all about the mercies of God. He, he tells the church, he tells all of us that there's no one righteous. No one. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3 says. Romans 6 says, all of us are deserving of the penalty of death for our treason against God, for choosing our own way above God's. Paul is telling both non-Jewish people and Jewish people, no one's innocent before God. No one. So he's saying like, hey, church folk, they can't come in and say, well, I'm church folk. I do the right thing. My granddad took me to church. I grew up going to church. I read the Bible as much as I can. Paul's going to say, Romans 1 through 11, none of you is righteous. If that's what you're bringing before God as your justification, as the thing that makes you pleasing in the sight of God, you're going to be disappointed. That doesn't sound like the mercies of God, right? You're like, wait a second, the mercies of God. It's the mercies of God because God tells you the truth about who you are. But he also tells you the truth about who he is. So we also learn 
that God intends to save. And he does that by faith alone, not through acts, not through following, like not doing the wrong things and doing the right things. He tells us in Romans that salvation comes by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf alone. That's the only way you can be made right before God. And then Paul kind of anticipates people being like, well, this is a big deal. God, might have, God must have thought that I'm pretty impressive. And he wanted to save me. He says, well, no, no, no. Actually, salvation is a free gift of grace offered to everyone who would believe. So the good news of the gospel, he says, the only way that you can be saved is through Christ and that that offer is offered to every single person. He also shows us the mercies of God, that God has pursued his people and he's called them to himself. In Romans 8, he says, if you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is yours in Christ. Christ purchased it for you. It can't be taken. Amen. You can't even rid yourself of it. So Paul says, right, this is why I'm so stoked to preach through Romans. <laughs> There's so much there. Okay, that was like something that will probably take us two years to cover that whole, that whole bit when we eventually do it. So Paul says in Romans 12, in light of all that, all the mercies of God, all that God has done for you in Christ, here's how to follow Jesus. In light of that, now follow Jesus. He, he's trying to help us see something. And this is so important as you're reading your Bible, especially these letters to the churches in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. These letters that he's writing to people, Paul has a very predictable uh, strategy, a very predictable flow. He's not too concerned with being creative and having all kinds of, you know, you start with the conflict, whatever. He's like, this is what God has done for you. This is how to live in light of what God has done for you. Don't mess that up. This is one of the, this is one of the reasons we're preaching through Philippians. We'll preach through books of the Bible so that we don't detach these things. The, the done comes before the do. Right? It is not, here is your actions that will lead to your identity. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of them have this flow where Paul says, I want to remind you of your identity and show you how that identity influences your action. Declaration before demonstration. Done what God has done before what we do. So important. Don't get that backwards. Identity before action. Who you are in Christ precedes how you follow Christ. Don't get it backwards. Okay. There's like six different sermons I'm really trying not to preach, okay? And I got this one in my bones. All right. That's why we start with identity and move to action. That's why we're talking about this week, what does our action as the body of Christ look like? And last week we talked about our identity. We're not switching those because the Bible doesn't. Identity comes before action. Now watch how Paul will answer this question. So how does our identity shape our action? It's fascinating how he answers this. Look at verse 3 of Romans 12. He says, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you, the whole church, all of us, not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts don't have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members, uh, individually members of one another. 
we typically, here's how we typically view ourselves. It's really interesting what Paul's doing here. We typically view ourselves in an overinflated way or an underinflated way. An overinflated way is, I'm amazing, I can make it on my own, I don't need anyone. That's an overinflated way. And Paul says, don't do that. But we also can view ourselves in an underinflated way, which is, I'm the worst and I don't matter to anyone. So Paul's going to say, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, meaning, like, don't have an overinflated view of yourself, but also don't have an underinflated view of yourself. D do you notice what happens when God gives us our identity as the body of Christ? Those two ways that, that really everyone in the world views themselves. You either have people who are like, I'm awesome, I don't need anybody. Everybody else just needs to learn how to handle my awesomeness. And then you have people who are like, I'm the worst. If people really knew me, they wouldn't want to be around me. You have no self-worth. The gospel actually answers both of those, right? So what, what happens when Jesus gives us the identity as the body of Christ? Do you notice what he does with these two things? This is why metaphors are so important. That identity as the body of Christ, it both humbles us because it means you don't matter more than anyone else who's here. Your, your gift, my gift is not the most spectacular gift. I am not above other people here. You don't matter more than anyone else. So it answers over inflation. Like, well, no, actually, everyone who's a part of the body of Christ matters just as much. So it humbles us, but it also lifts us up. Because what that means is you matter just as much as everybody else does. Not because of how great you are, because of how great Christ is. So for those of us who, who have a puffed up, overinflated view of ourselves, Paul's saying, no, 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 as the body of Christ, you're no more important than any other person. Your gift, not more important than any other gift. And for those of us who are here and are like, I don't think anyone here actually wants me a part of this church or a part of this family. The body of Christ reminds us that you're a member of the body integral to the body, needed just as much as everyone else. It both humbles us and it lifts us up. Now, you may be saying, well, is that really true? Pastors, don't they matter more than other people? They're up there teaching, Blake's singing, and he sings better than I do. Doesn't he matter more than I do? It's like Paul anticipates that objection. I love the way Paul thinks. It's so helpful for me. So he anticipates it. Look what he does in verse 4. As we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, according to the grace given to us. So he says your gift isn't because of how awesome you are. Your role in the body isn't because God was like, man, that person works out, I want him to be the bicep in my body, right? <laughs> He says, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If serving, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. Paul's saying, in the same way that my body has all these different parts to it, and they're all really important, it would be really easy to be like, yeah, but, but like... The toe, how important is a toe? Well, if you've been walking through the dark in the middle of the night and you've stubbed your toe, you know how important your toe is. And you recognize, like, you typically don't really think about, Tim Keller points this out, it's so helpful. 
that you don't often think about your toe until you stub it and it hurts. And then you're like, sweet Jesus, I don't know how I'm going to make it through life. And I think God's calling me home and I, I see light and I'm going to don't go towards the light. Right. Like every part of the body matters. And you know that when one part of your body isn't functioning the way it should. You have that one little valve in your heart that doesn't open and close the way it's intended to. You start to think, huh, that valve I've never thought about seems pretty important right now. Paul's saying that's how it is in the body of Christ. That's how it is in the body of Christ. We all have gifts. They're beneficial to the body. All, not some. Okay, how does this metaphor shape our identity? First, it changes the way we relate to ourselves and others. You individually are a part of the body of Christ a vital member, but so are other people in the body. It changes the way we relate to ourselves and others. Second, it changes the way we relate to the church. So how does it shape our identity? It changes the way we relate to the church. Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. We've got to get rolling. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. This metaphor shapes our identity by changing the way that we relate to the world. There's this truth that we're in the world, not of the world. And uh, we'll often use that as why we should be like separate, totally separate from the world. Do your own thing. Don't get, don't get like world cooties on you. Be away from the world. We're in the world, not of the world. That's true. What that means is that the patterns of life, our motivations, our values, our systems, they don't define us anymore. The way the world would engage that question, it doesn't define us anymore. Jesus does. He's our king. We're a part of his kingdom. But he didn't remove us from the world. In the world, not of the world, but still in the world. We're his body, the presence of Jesus in the world. We're the presence of Jesus in the world. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be the presence of Jesus in the world? Well, look at, look at this. He, he starts to answer this in verses 14 through 21. He says, uh, you want to know how to be the presence of Jesus in the world? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it's written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. He doesn't remove us from the world. He leaves us in the world. So this metaphor changes the way that we relate to the world. What does it look like to be the presence of Jesus in the world? We bless those who persecute people. That's what Jesus did. Jesus blessed those who persecuted him. 
Jesus rejoiced with those who rejoiced, and he wept with those who wept. He was actually with people. He didn't tell them, why are you crying about that? I'll give you something to cry about. He wept with them. He didn't say, oh, you think you have a bad, at least it's not like this. You lost a leg, at least you didn't lose two. That's not how Jesus would respond to people. He associated with the lowly. He never repaid evil for evil. He lived at peace with all people so far as it depended on him. He didn't avenge himself. He trusted God. And as his body, we're called to live in the same way. Imperfectly as we do, yes. We're called to live in the same way. So if you're in here and you're a follower of Jesus, I, I just want to ask you, like, where is the invitation from Jesus for you? Maybe as you think of, of that, like as you read those verses, that there's one that's spotlighted to you, man. That's how the Spirit works. He's alive. He's active. He's inside you. He's going to bring conviction. Maybe as you're reading this, you're like, man, I, I don't do well rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. I, I don't do well. I, I like want to... People who've done evil to me, I want to do evil right back to them. I don't trust God to avenge me, to vindicate my name. I need to do it because God's being too slow. Where's the invitation from Jesus for you? Where do you need to live more fully, to embody more fully your identity as the body of Christ? Where's your action not in line with your identity? Don't get it backwards. We don't do identity. We don't do action to get identity, but where is it not in anyway? If you're in here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you got doubts, you got questions. There's two questions that you've got to answer in life. There's a reason philosophers talk so much about these questions, because everybody's terrified of them. Who are you? And what's your purpose? Our culture doesn't give satisfying answers for those. You're a soldier, and your purpose is to be a soldier. What happens when you retire? You're an athlete. What happens when your body starts to break down? But the world makes us think, well, my, my identity is in my sexuality. My identity is in my job. My identity is in who I am. My identity is being a better dad than my dad was, a better mom than my mom was. My identity is in my degree, all of that. And I just say, what happens when that doesn't hold up? When it's taken away? The world gives no satisfying answer for those questions. Who am I? What's my purpose? But Jesus in love gives an answer to both of those. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's actually an invitation for you from Jesus to trade your identity for his. And so the question is, will you receive your identity as the body of Christ? Or will you reject the invitation and continue to choose your own way? Come to Jesus. There is mercy and grace for all at the foot of the cross. All of us. Amen. Church, we are the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need you. I, uh, as we gather every week, um, I'm, I continue to come in and think, good gracious, I'm just as needy as I was last week.
And uh, I know next Sunday I'll come in just as needy, and I'm so grateful that we as your people, as your body, that we get to gather and, and um, be nourished by you and by each other. Uh, Spirit, we pray that uh, what's been deposited into our hearts and our souls, that um, you, would, you would keep that, that you would seal that, that this wouldn't be that one series we did that one time that this metaphor that we're the body of Christ, that it would become a, a, an, an ever, our experience of that would ever deepen into the reality and, and come in line with the reality of that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to invite you guys to stand with me. Um, any person who loves their body nourishes their body. You know, man, fasting's good for you. You can only go so long without food and without drink. And uh, Jesus knows that. So I want to I ask, uh, as we turn to the table, those who are serving communion, go ahead and come on down front. Um, Jesus knows that his body, that we need to be nourished. And so he nourishes us as we gather together and we, we look around and we remember, oh my goodness. I had an overinflated view of myself, or I had an underinflated view of myself, and I look at my family and remember every person matters just as much as I do. Jesus loves all of us. He nourishes us as we gather. He nourishes us as we sing, as we hear people declare truths about Jesus over us. He nourishes us as we confess sin, and we're reminded of his pardon, of his forgiveness of us, and he nourishes us as he makes his word alive and active to us. He also nourishes us through a meal. And, uh, Jesus knew we needed a physical reminder of what he'd done. We needed like an embodied physical reminder of his presence because this is what Jesus is offering as we come to communion, as we come to the Lord's Supper. He's offering his presence. Not in a weird way where we would say, hey, as you take this bread and as I bless it, it actually it becomes the literal body of Christ wine becomes the literal blood of Christ. No. But it's also something deeper than just remembrance. Jesus actually wants to nourish you today as you come to the table. As you look at a piece of bread, if you're in Christ and you remember that Jesus' body was torn apart, that's why we don't have pretty, like, cut up perfect pieces. We tear from a common loaf to remind ourselves there's something that happens as we physically tear. Remember, Jesus' body was ripped apart for us that we might become a part of his body. Then Jesus holds up a cup to his body, as much faith or as little as you walk in here with. He says, my son, my sweet daughter, you need to be nourished. You feel beat up, broke down, busted apart. Come and be reminded of my presence. And so he holds up a cup. He says, this is my blood poured out for you. So if you're in Christ, in a moment I'm going to invite you to come down the middle to receive the Lord's Supper, to take the bread or, or the gluten-free crackers, to remember Jesus' body broken, and then to take the wine or the juice, depending on your convictions, to remember his blood shed for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you not to come to this table. It's, it's a special meal for us, but I want to still invite you to come. Yeah. The invitation from Jesus is come to me. 